All right, keep your Bibles open. Let's look at this together. So if you are new or you have uh, missed a stretch, we are walking through the book of Colossians. And in this book, this is a letter written to a church by Paul, uh, who was a church planting, um, the Apostle Paul. And um, he has spent, um, so far, we're at the end of chapter 3, and he's spent the first portion of this short letter. But man, it is packed full of truth. He has spent that reminding us of the gloriousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're new to that word, that simply means good news. The gospel means good news, that, that, that there is good news, that this world is broken and it is jacked up. That's the bad news, and you're aware of that. And you know that in your own life, you know that as you watch the news, that this world is, is broken, it is, it is messed up, and that is because of our sin. But the good news is that God was not content to just leave us in that. He sent Jesus, who is his one and only son, the perfect God, who had been with him from the beginning, takes on flesh. He leaves heaven. He takes on flesh. We celebrate that at Christmas. He becomes a man, and he lives the life that we couldn't live, meaning he was perfect. He was sinless. He did not offend God's law. He did not rebel against him. He lived the perfect life. And then he actually died the death that you and I deserve to die. He took our place. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That means what we've earned by sinning is we should die. Jesus says, I'm going to get that tab. He went to the cross and he paid our wage. He paid our debt. He, there on the cross, received and endured the wrath of God on our behalf. The Bible calls it the propitiation of our sin. Like that he took what we should have received from God on our behalf and he went to the grave where we belong to go. Where we belong to be. That is what our Jesus has done. But the good news, the great news is, is that because death had no hold on him, because he had not sinned, because he had not earned that, he came back from the grave. Three days later, we celebrate that at Easter. He got up out of that grave. The stone was rolled away, and Jesus was resurrected, and he came in victory. And he extends that victory to all who would come and confess their sins and cry out to him to become their Savior. Turn from our sins and trust in him. And so Paul has been explaining this in beautiful, theologically, doctrinally rich detail in Colossians and, and, and in a way saying, this has changed everything. This is not just something you kind of hear and go, okay, cool, I'm in. No, this changes everything Paul has said. And specifically the last few weeks he's been talking about, because that relationship has been changed, now how does it affect our other relationships? Because by very nature, the transformation that happens when we are reconciled with our God absolutely overflows and, and spills into every area of our life. Indeed, it must. Jesus demands that our whole lives become one of obedience and honoring to him. So Paul has been talking about what does that look like in our relationships, particularly in the household. So we've looked at husbands and wives. We've looked at parents and kids, and today he's going to extend that to what we'll get to will be work life, but we got to do a little bit of work when we get there because their households looked a little different than ours. Okay, for, for them in Greco-Roman ancient culture here, it would, it would not be unusual for them to have multiple generations in the same household, so they got adult children living there. Uh, but then more specifically, it was very, very common for them to have servants, or as some of may say slaves in their home. Uh, and so this is, this is very common in this day and age. And so Paul is going to speak directly to it. But for us, we are tempted to read our own American history into this passage and passages like this. And when we do that, we can get um, really confused and, and really offended and 
Um, and in fact, many critics of Christianity want to use passages like this and others in the Bible to say that this is a bigoted book, an outdated book, because uh, the Bible seems to promote and condone slavery. And so we got to do a little bit of work to make sure that that's not an obstacle that we're hung up on before we can apply it to our own life. So we want to do that just briefly. So um, when we're talking about slavery in the Greco-Roman culture, there are some di distinct differences. This does not mean that it was always good or even that it was okay. Okay, the Bible does is going to speak to and regulate what's going on with, with slavery, oftentimes without commending it, okay? And, and we need to know that there are differences. It's a very complex system. In fact, if you read the ESV or using one of the Bibles that are in front of you, in the preface, in the ESV, it's gonna talk about translating specific terms. And this is one that it gives careful attention to because when it comes to um, different languages and different points in history, the word that is often translated as slave can have different meanings, okay? So there are times whenever what, what is being spoken of is somebody who, who entered into a position of servanthood voluntarily, okay? There are other times whenever it indeed was a, a, an ownership situation. And in those situations, the Bible's gonna call that a slave, if you have a good literal translation, translation in other places, whenever it was a, a different, maybe entered into voluntarily, maybe a different system, not quite the same as what we know in, in American slave trade, shadow, like slavery, it will be translated into bondservant. And that's what the ESV is going to call this passage here. Um, and so some of your translations will say slave. And there is indeed still some work to do there. But we need to first know that, that when we're talking about this cultural difference, and this is part of what gets into you know, the misunderstanding that many used and many of our founding fathers in America used to justify their own slavery was a misunderstanding of what was being written about here versus what was happening then. So let's just look briefly at some of those uh, distinctions. So um, slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not based on race. Okay? It wasn't based on race. In fact, you know, they would have slaves of, or you know, servants of all different races. They would have some that were the same race as them. It was very common, right? This was a very, uh, very common. Some, many historians and theologians estimate that up to a between a third and a half of the population in Rome were actually slaves of some sort, right? Bond servants of some sort. And so this is very common, and it wasn't based on race. Any notion, hear me, any notion that one ethnicity is superior to another and therefore thinks that they get to speak to another one and say that they are less human, three-fifths or otherwise, is absolutely deplorable, is absolutely unexcusable, and is a misuse of God's word if they use that to try to justify that. There is no room for that in the kingdom of God, in the household of God. And we're going to see that the language that Paul and other writers in the New Testament use will actually become um, the language that lays the foundation for prohibition down the road. Okay, so we need to be clear about what we're, we're speaking about here. But um, so slavery in this day and age was, was different in that it wasn't based on race. And oftentimes slaves were permitted to earn money and therefore save money and eventually even buy back their freedom. Um, slaves were were, it was common for them to actually own their own slaves, right? So you start to see this is not the same sort of, um, you know, America, this is not just like American history. There is, there's differences here. Um, slavery was, was, um, wasn't always permanent, right? A lot of times people would enter into these agreements for a pretty long period of time, to be sure, but not permanent, right? So they could buy back their freedom, or sometimes they were freed at the age of 30, or in the Jewish culture at the year of, of Jubilee. So there's, there's some exceptions that make it not permanent oftentimes, right? Now, there's exceptions within all of this. There was some extreme abuse in the ancient world. There were some people who, in fact, were probably worse than our American forefathers in how they treated slaves, 
right? There was sexual abuse of slaves. There was perpetual abuse of slaves. So don't hear what I'm not saying. This was not always a good system. And in fact, it was often a deplorable system, but it is different, so we need to know that. Um, it was sometimes entered involuntarily to pay off debt, survive, right? Some people just couldn't get what they needed to survive, so they might enter into this. They might even give their kids to another family, right? So that and this is not... Okay, this is just you know, part of the complex system that's going on here. Um, or they might even do it just to get a business started, right? They might work with somebody for 15, 20 years as the bond servant, as a slave, and then be given their freedom and an opportunity to now know that trade and go and work on their own. So there are some differences, but we need to be clear. The Bible, uh, particularly in 1 Timothy 1, 10, condemns outright as sin the, the, um, the practice of enslaving or man-trading. It's translated different in different passages, but this idea of, of you know, human trafficking, going and getting a group of people and selling them into slavery, owning them, that idea is outright condemned in a few places, but most explicitly in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. And so it forcibly condemns such forcible enslavement and ownership. Um, and then, as I said, the way that Paul and others will address Slaves, as we're going to see even in this passage, and the whole book of uh, Philemon is, is, taught, is, is about a slave, Onesimus, who is a leader in the church and is sent back to his, um, to his owner as a brother. The, the whole way that Paul is even addressing, the fact that Paul is even addressing slaves, right? That he's expecting them to be in the church, to be a part of the household, to be equals. Say, and Paul says, in the household of faith, there is no slave or free, right? There is no better than or hierarchy, right? Even slaves could be leaders in the church in such a way that they might be spiritual authority over their owners. Isn't that crazy? That, that in this, like, Paul is saying, no, no, this person is indeed, you know, a bond servant as a slave, but in the church, he might be promoted de deacon or elder. And that might put him in spiritual authority over his master. So the way that Paul is addressing these things actually does lead to the prohibition that will come later. And, and it's helpful for us to just know that God takes a long-term view when it comes to changing history. And even whenever we think about our own history, we need to be very careful as Christians. We need to be very careful not to speak quickly with, with quick judgment or dismissiveness of our history. There is a, an absolute deplorable nature to what went on in America in the slavery era. And we don't need to defend that. And we don't need to defend those who were a part of it. We can acknowledge it and grieve it and learn from it and move on. It, it doesn't mean we have to tear the whole system down, right? Because some flawed men with a misunderstanding of perhaps this culture or what, what God was saying, like used the Bible and this happened. This is, this is a lot of skeptics' issue with Christianity is that a lot of people use the Bible to justify their owning of slaves. And we need not defend that because it's deplorable. Okay, it's not okay. And so we as Christians need to have a right understanding of that. We need to be quick to acknowledge that that was wrong, that that isn't what the scriptures meant, and that was a sin to be grieved and repented of. But it does help us to know that, that the way that God views things is that he can move them over time and move forward, and we don't have to deconstruct the entire thing, but we do need to be willing to acknowledge those things, right? So it's wrong to go on one side of that and say, see, because it was founded in this way, we need to tear the whole thing down. That's wrong. 
But it's also wrong for us to go, la, 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 don't talk to me about slavery. Don't talk to about, about how, we, you know, like, we, I don't want to hear any part of that. No, we need to be able to listen and enter in to the pain that is our history that is not that far removed in reality. And that we need to be, um, as age, we need to be agents of healing and peacekeepers and a balm to our broken and fractured and divided world. Right? The culture is going to try to press us into these different categories and these different ideological positions. We as Christians need to be able to rise above that, stand firm in God's word, own what was wrong, and seek what is right going forward. Amen? Does that make a little bit of sense? Wasn't the point of the sermon, but we got to do that work before we get there. If you need to talk more about that, I did attach one resource to your app. Um, it's from Desiring God. There's other, if you just search around on there, there's other resources there. If you need to have a conversation to go a little bit deeper, I'm, I'm more than willing to do that. But we're going to move on. We're going to apply this now to um, what is the closest parallel. It's not perfect, right? But Paul is speaking to this because it is very common for this culture. Uh, as I said, a third to half of people were slaves. So it was very common. Most households had some form of servants. So Paul is speaking to this because it is an issue that is going to play out in different context and different specific relationships throughout history, but nonetheless, it's always going to be this, this uh, thing that all of us have to wrestle with. It's back to, you know, authority and honoring God in those relationships of authority and work, right? So it was wrapped different for them, but the principles can be extracted and applied for us as well. So um, we want to jump in and from here on out, we're going to be sort of, um, again, not a perfect parallel, but the closest thing we've got between master and slave that Paul's talking about here, uh, would be boss and employee. Okay. So we're just going to use that. And, and, and from here on out, as we're speaking about those things, we're going to apply that accordingly. So, um, we're going to talk about work life. Okay. Now we don't talk about that a ton as a church. Um, and maybe the church in general, we, we sort of had these, we compartmentalize a little bit. Yes, I'm a Christian. I know I should, you know, be a good witness at work, right? But work doesn't often feel super tied to our spirituality, does it? Do you ever struggle to wonder how on earth you're serving God and, and honoring and, and bringing glory to God while you're just like, you know, processing orders at work or supervising some teenager? You know, I don't know what, what you do, right? But it, it can struggle to feel like it has purpose and meaning behind it. And yet, this is a huge deal because we spend a ton of our life at work. And so it shouldn't be this disconnected thing. In fact, we need to know how to integrate our work life with our spiritual life. So just quickly, the average person, um, the average working adult, if you work about 50 years, is going to spend on average around 94,000 hours at work. Okay, so that's if you work around 40 hours a week, 47 weeks, you know, for vacation and holidays and that sort of thing. If you do that for 50 years, it would be 94,000 hours on average. Um, so compare that to how many hours you're going to spend at church. Um, in that same period of time, between 7,000 and 10,000 or so. Um, and that's assuming you spend three hours a week at church, which is probably an overestimate for most of us, right? That's assuming, you know, between work, you know, church and community group, if you spend three hours a week and you do that for 50 years in that same kind of period, that would be 7,050 hours. And you might say, well, I'm going to retire from work, but I'm going to keep going to church. All right, tack on another 25 years, you're still only at 10,000 hours. So the proportion, you know, of our lives that we're going to spend at work versus church is, is significant. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we should stop working and spend more time in church? Should we all become monks? No. Now, some of y'all need to work on that balance, to be sure, right? Some of y'all need to address that. You got some work issues. 
Some of y'all give the Lord your leftovers. When you come to church when you can, you come to church whenever you don't have anything else going on. You need to work on that. But that's not the main point here. The point is actually that our work is actually a big part of God's kingdom coming. It's a big part of his design. It's not this afterthought. It's not this thing that we just have to do. Right? He's not disappointed that more of you aren't spending time in church offices. Right? That's not his, his will is not that all of you would be called into vocational ministry so that you come and join me here at the office. His will, and what he's trying to get us to see is the incredible opportunity that is before us when you all take the gospel into your workspace, when you live out the gospel as you go and as you do what you do, he's placed you where he has you on purpose, in the job that you have, in the neighborhood that you have, to live the life that he's put you on to bring glory to him. And so we don't want to dismiss it or just tolerate it. We want to leverage it for his glory and for his good. It's important to remember that work existed before the fall. Okay, now, it got hard after the fall, but work was there before the fall. If you notice, when God made Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden, he gave them the earth, and he told them to what? Work it, subdue it, right? Here's all this raw material. Here's the whole creation, and it's good. Now go make stuff out of it. Cultivate it. Build. Be creative. Do art, like all of that. Go. That, that was his, the cultural like mandate to go. Fill the earth. Subdue it. So that, like that's, Adam has his job before the fall. Adam even has his job before his wife. Like this is a part of God's design for us as humans is to be a people that create a people that work, a people that produce. Why? We're made in the image of God. Our God's a creative, producing, working God. Amen? We know that. We say that he works six days and rested on the seventh. Made in his image, work is a part of this deal. So we better figure out how to do it for his glory, right? So there are some truths in this passage that will help us do that. So let's, let's get there. All that was just an introduction. This won't take long, I promise. So let's jump in. Employees, all right? Bond servants, let's translate that to employees for our cultural transition. It says, obey, verse 22, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Obey in everything. So the first thing we're going to see, wisdom for us, how do we honor God in work? Do what your boss says. Do what your boss says. Do what they say, right? Now, Always the caveat, you obey them as long as they're not leading you to disobey God. Like, that's fair, right? If they're telling you to sin, bring harm to others, you, you draw a line there, you make a stand there. But outside of that, obey your boss, right? Do what they say. It, and so without, you know, just that exception, if it's leading you to sin, you need to do what they say. Sometimes this is hard. Sometimes you don't have good bosses, right? But you still need to do it. Uh, when I was at Aldi, they, had, they would, so I was a store manager for all day. They would bring in, um, they would hire their district manager straight out of college. I wasn't an old man by any means, but they would hire these people like 22 years old, put them in suits and send them into stores to, to run our store. And sometimes it was hard because they had a lot of ideas that were frankly dumb, right? But what am I supposed to do? Like they're my boss. I had to do it. I remember this one time before I was a manager, I was, just, I was a manager trainee and I got sent to run a store while this, uh, the guy from Centralia was going to be out for a couple weeks. So I got to run his store. Uh, first of all, it's a terrible drive to Centralia. But second of all, I'm up there, and here comes this new, you know, this district manager. He's just like all hyped up all the time. He's just real excited about life and Aldi. And he was like, hey, Jordan, what do you think about their back room? I was like, I think it's a back room. It's big. It's awesome because Marion's really small. He's like, yeah, but doesn't it need something? I was like, I don't know, man. I got stuff to do. He's like, I think we should rearrange it. I was like, ooh, dude. 
I don't want to be messing with another dude's store. Like, that's a bad idea. I'm just here to run it. He's like, yeah, we should rearrange it. We should put, I mean, and he was like talking big time. He's like, hey, these empty pallets, they should be over here where the milk crates, where the milk racks are. And then the milk racks, they should be over here where this alcohol overstock should be. And then you need to take that overstock and take it all off pallets and put it onto benches and put it over here. And then take these full pallet backstock and put them over here. And I was like, oh my gosh, he's going to kill me. Meaning the store manager. And I was like, well, I don't know if any of this makes any sense, but Besides that, I'm not really the boss here. He goes, I know, but I am. Let's just do it. I was like, man, I'm already behind. He's like, ah, don't worry about hours. Productivity, efficiency is a big deal for Aldi. It actually affects a manager's paycheck. Okay? He was like, don't worry about hours. Just get it done. Okay? I'm still hourly at this point. So he's like, I'll be back Friday to check it out. So I spend like 15 extra hours that week. I'm already short staffed, and I rearrange this whole back room. The whole staff's mad at me. They don't know who I am. They just know I'm coming in here. Like, they're mad at me. They think it's dumb. I agree with them, but I got to do it, right? And so I spend hours. I tank his productivity. I'm literally affecting this guy's paycheck when he comes back. I tank his productivity, um, and I rearrange his whole back room. At some point, one of the employees called that guy, the manager, and told him what was going on. He called me. He's like, dude, what are you doing to my store? I was like, I'm just doing what the boss said. He goes, well, you're going to have to stay and help me fix it when I get back. I was like, okay, as long as y'all keep paying me, whatever, right? I'll do it. So, like comes back. District manager's really excited about it. It doesn't work real well with the flow of the store. Um, and it, and it, frankly, it just doesn't go well in general. Um, and so sure enough, not that long after that, that district manager got fired for um, wrecking the company car too often, which led to him getting a drug test, which he did not pass. So not a good boss. What's Jordan's role? Obey. Right? Do what the boss said. Bad idea? Okay, it's an opportunity for me to honor the Lord even though this is a ridiculous request. It's an opportunity for me to honor that man's authority even though this is a ridiculous request. Right? It matters. It, maybe even especially when it's a bad boss, it matters how we respond. So you, need to, you need to do what they say, right? Now the second is you need to do it even when they're not looking, right? So it says not, <clears throat> let's see, what's it say? Uh, not by way of eye service, Right? So not just meaning whenever the boss's eyes on you. You know this trick, don't you? Oh crap, the boss is coming. Y'all know that drill, right? Everybody standing around talking. Oh, gotta look busy, right? You know that. You do it in school, kids. You know that. Cutting up. And then teacher comes back in. Oh yeah, yeah. I was totally working on this, right? You know that drill. It says don't do that. Don't do that. Not by way of eye service. It says. It's not honoring to God. Don't be that person. Whether the boss is watching or not, God is. Um, I service, man, that leads to half, like half done jobs. That leads to people who are just doing just bare minimum so that they don't get caught. That leads to the things that leads to corners being cut. That leads to a dishonoring of the Lord. There's a story. Um, I, I think it's true though. I don't really know the, the source, but there was a story that there was a janitor who was cleaning corporate office buildings and he was training a new guy. And he was, as he was training the new guy, they were in the bathrooms and he was cleaning the toilets. And he's like, all right, now I take this tool and I clean the, clean the back of the toilet. And the new guy was like, why are you clean the back of the toilet? Nobody can see that. He goes, because I work for Jesus, and he can see back there too. All right? We need to be those kind of people that we're not just doing it for eye service. We're not just doing it when we might get caught. We do our job all the time, no matter who's watching. 
Which brings us to our next point. Don't do it for the recognition of others, right? It says, don't do it by way of eye service as people pleasers. Now this plays out in one of two different ways. Most commonly, people pleaser is what? The brown noser, right? This is the people that are over eager to please the boss. And they want to make sure that the boss and everybody else know everything they did. Hey boss, how's your day? Did you see what I did last night? Did you see how I did this? Hey boss, anything else I can do for you? I brought you some coffee. Here boss, you know, like, right? They're just, and everybody rolls their eyes. because like, dude, stop kissing up. Just do your job. Is it wrong? Mm, probably, because of who you work, who are you doing that for? I'm doing that for the boss. No, you're doing that for yourself. Right? You're doing that so you get noticed. You're doing that so you get their recognition. You're doing that to be a people pleaser. Right? I, had a, I had a guy that worked for me at, at Home Depot that was like that. He was just always trying to make sure that everybody knew everything he did and always trying to go above and beyond. And again, that's not a bad thing to have ambition, but when you're just like, you know, up the boss's rear end. It's not, that's, that's not what the boss wants. Just go do your job, right? I'll give you, like, a good boss, as we'll get to, should recognize, should encourage, should acknowledge that employee's hard work. So uh, the other way that that plays out, you're not, the you're not the brown noser, but you're so worried about what your peers think and other people in the workforce that you are willing to lower your integrity just to keep their approval. Does this make sense? So... Maybe everybody else likes to show up late and bail early, but still record their full hours. And you know that's not right, but you don't want to upset the apple cart, right? You don't want to be that guy, that girl, so you just go along with it, right? That's being a people pleaser, right? What if everybody else cuts corners, right? Rounds up on their hours, stretches the truth, takes longer breaks, If that's the culture that you work in and you start working with integrity, what's going to happen? You might get made fun of, right? You might even get lied about because when you start living with integrity, those people are going to feel judged, aren't they? They're going to feel in indicted by your actions. And there's actually been good Christian people trying to live for Jesus that have lost their jobs because they got lied about because they were simply trying to live with integrity. But that's what we need to choose, right? We work not eye service, not for people pleasing, but as it says in the next part of the passage, with what? Sincerity of heart. The end of verse 22, fearing the Lord. We work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Why? Point number four, working hard brings glory to God. When we work hard, it brings glory to God, especially if you're known as a Christian, right? If you, if you make it clear that you're a Christian and you should, you shouldn't hide that, right? And then you cut up and cut corners and take advantage of and steal from the boss, whether that be in time or money or whatever, that's a horrible witness. But when you show up and work hard and ask questions and do your job, you bring honor to our God. When you work hard, it brings honor to the Lord. It says that we should do our jobs, do what the boss says, but not just do it, do it with what? A sincerity of heart. Some of y'all really struggle with that. You really struggle with that. Your face Tells everybody how you really feel, but you go ahead and do the work, right? Just do it with sincerity of heart. Do it with energy and do it with joy. You may think it's a really dumb task. I'm not sure I did that whole backroom remodel with sincerity of heart. And my face was probably communicating how dumb I thought that was and how tired I was, right? But I was wrong. You need to do it with sincerity of heart, with energy, with joy. Here's the deal. 
the pagan master in this culture, or the, or the pagan slave, rather. They served their master because they were bound by what? Fear. Right? The pagan slave in this context, they did what their master said because they were bound by fear. The Christian servant, the Christian employee, serves his master because he has a better master that he fears more. He has a better master that he's working for. Back to the janitor, I work for Jesus, and he sees back there too. Right? Working hard brings glory to God. So we don't do it for praise and recognition, but because it's the right thing to do. You need to think about the fear of the Lord in your job, in your workspace. What does this mean? You might need to go to your boss and ask what you can improve on before your performance review. That'll blow their mind. You say, hey, boss, I really want to know how I can do my job better. You got any, you got any thoughts? I want to make your job easier. How can, I, how can I serve you better? I want to learn more about the business. Can I have more opportunities? Could I take an extra shift? Could I stay a little bit later and, and learn you know, some, some other things that might help the business grow? Right? Some of you don't understand your job. <laughs> some of you don't actually know what you're supposed to be doing. You're not cutting up on purpose and screwing off on purpose. You just literally don't know what you're supposed to do. Anybody ever been in those? I've like got bad instruction. I did everything I thought I was supposed to do in an hour and I got seven left. Anybody been in one of those jobs? Like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, right? What do you need to do? You need to go to your boss and ask for clarity. Say, hey, I'm not sure I understand all of it. Can you help me? I want to do, do, do a good job. Can you help me understand? If you've had a bad attitude at work, you should change it. You should change it. I'm serious. You need to let the gospel seep into every area of your life and bring life there. What that looks like is you should have a good attitude. You should, you should work that out. Whatever that looks like, you should change it. You, need to, you might need to apologize, too, to those that have experienced your bad attitude. That may be your boss, that may be your coworkers, maybe both, but you need to do that. And here's why. Verse 24 says, well, verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Okay, that's why. Because you're working for the Lord and not for men. The gospel changes everything. Your work life is no exception. Okay, so verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. And there is no partiality. Some of you are you have a bad attitude. Some of you are so soured and bogged down because all you see at work is partiality, right? All you see is the politics. All you see is the, is the junk that gets you, you know, crapped on. And it doesn't matter how good of a job you do. This person's going to get it because they know so-and-so, right? Some of you are so bogged down by that, that you've let your attitude get totally poisoned. And you're not honoring to the Lord, but you feel really justified in it. Paul says, hey, listen, don't forget, the gospel changes everything. And you're no longer living to get value out of this short term. You're no longer living to try to get value out of how much money you make or how much recognition you get at work. You're no longer bound by the things that used to constrain you to make you feel like you were less than, make you feel like you hadn't arrived. The pressure to achieve, the pressure to get promoted, the pressure to be noticed, all of that, it says earlier in the chapter, was taken to the cross by Jesus and nailed there and disarmed and put to shame. And now you are free to live for him. You're free to live as one who's been given their identity and it cannot be taken away. You lose your job, guess what? You're still 
a beloved son, beloved daughter of the king who has promised to provide for you. You get made fun of, guess what? You know who else they made fun of? Jesus. They, pro- they, per- they persecute you. They-, they run you down. They make you feel less than. Jesus said, yeah, he did that to me too. Servant's not better than their master, so don't be surprised when the world hates you because they hated me too. Right? The gospel changes everything, and it frees us and gives us the power to live for him. It gives us the power. I, I, I made note of when we were singing earlier the song, uh, Another in the Fire, one of the lines, I think in the second chorus, and said, should I ever need reminding what power set me free? There is a grave that holds no body, and that power now lives in me. That transforms our work life. That transforms our relationships. And it sets us out to start living for eternity, to start investing where moth and rust don't destroy, as Jesus said. Right? The old adage is you can't take it with you. Talking about money. You know what? That's true, but you can send it on ahead. You could send it on ahead. You can invest now in your eternal reward. The Bible makes it clear. It's not super clear how that's going to work out, but it's clear that we will receive rewards in heaven. We will receive rewards for how we live now. It will be returned to us. And so we invest in the future. We invest and we send our investment on ahead, knowing that, yes, this whole system we work in, some of you more than others, is all jacked up by partiality and all jacked up by sin and all jacked up by all sorts of things that you can name better than anybody else. Amen? But he says, one day, don't forget your servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. For one day, verse 25, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he's done. So yeah, you may get passed over here, but you won't get passed over there. You may, you may have been taken advantage of here. He'll dole out justice someday, and you'll get yours there. All right, so we cling to that, and we live for that. Okay, so you work as though you're working for the Lord and you let your earnings be invested in eternity. You trust him for your provision and you live faithfully. You work hard and you bring honor and glory to God. All right, now bosses, verse uh, one of chapter four says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So Paul's gonna put in perspective, hey, master, like just like with husbands and wives, he starts out with wives saying wives should submit to their husbands, but he doesn't just stop there because if he does, that, uh, that relationships are going to get abused, right? He goes on to reciprocal command to tell husbands to love their, wife, or to love their wives, right? Not be harsh with them, right? Same with, with, with kids. Yes, obey your parents, but he goes on to say, hey, parents, don't be harsh with your kids, right? And so here he's going to say, servants, employees, do what your boss says. Work hard for the Lord, even if they're a bad boss. But he's going to go on to say, okay, now bosses, treat people fairly and justly. Why? Because you also have a master in heaven. You may think you're big stuff now, but unless you get, you know, too big for your britches, so to speak, unless you get out of place, your head gets too big, you forget people, you forget where you came from, he says, hey, don't forget where we're headed. And one day, we'll all stand before God, and every knee will bow. And that ground will be level. So make sure that you are living rightly in the midst of this. So bosses, treat your employees fairly and justly. And this doesn't mean just do the bare minimum because here's like Paul's commands here are pretty revolutionary because uh, slaves in this world, they didn't have, they weren't going to have an opportunity to go get a lawyer 
Or they didn't have HR that they could go to and, and, and say that they were being mistreated. They didn't have a, a, a standing in the courts to say that they weren't being you know, compensated rightly or treated justly. There was no power to represent them. There was no authority. They just had to take it, whatever abuse came. And so Paul's saying, hey, don't just do the bare minimum. I know the, the culture will let you get away with this, but you need to go above and beyond because you are serving the Lord as well. So make sure you're treating people fairly. Go above and beyond what the law says or what HR says and love your people well. Treat them fairly. Treat them justly. Treat them rightly. Okay. Second thing, bosses, choose integrity. Choose integrity, right? And that will be part of treating people justly and fairly. But if you have to choose between what is right and moral versus what is profitable, you need to choose what's right and moral. You need to choose integrity. If you have to choose between what's right and honoring to the Lord and what will earn you more money, you need to choose what's right and honoring to the Lord. Right now, you're gonna have to apply this to your own situation. Right, you have to work these out into the details of your own life and your own workspace. But if you are someone who is a supervisor and has authority over other people, you need to make sure that you're treating them justly and fairly because you too are working for the Lord. Which brings us to the last point, bosses. You also should be working for eternity. You also should be working with that in mind. Not just how do you maximize your profit here and now, but how do I invest? in eternity? How do I invest in the kingdom? Not just my own reward in the kingdom, but God's plan for the kingdom. How do I use my position of authority and power and influence to, to bring his kingdom to, come, to bear on this world? How do I use what the resources that God has given me to bless those around me? Am I, am I thinking about those downline for me? And am I thinking about God's plan and why he put me in this position. If you used to pray to God and, and trust him and, and give such devotion to him and, and ask him to give you a position of influence and give you a position of authority, and then when you got there, you just straight up forgot about him and started living for yourself, you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to know that God gave you the business you have, the position you have, the, the influence you have to be used for his glory, not just your own Recognition, not just your own profit. How do you live that out? <clears throat> Listen, it reminds us that we have a master in heaven. The Bible is full of examples and warnings and parables about living for eternity and not just trying to get all that we can out of this life. There's the story of the man who was blessed with an incredible harvest, right? So what does he do? He builds bigger barns. He decides he's just going to eat, drink, and be merry. What does Jesus say? That very night, his life was required of him. Right? It's a sobering reality that, hey, you really can't take it with you. You can't get what you're trying to get out of this position and this profit and this respect and this act, you know, acknowledgement and recognition from other people. You're trying to get life and value and identity out of it, and it's an empty pursuit. It's a, it's a dry and broken well. It can't hold water. You feel like you're gaining ground, but it just keeps seeping out, and you'll never be satisfied until you turn to the Lord and let him transform your heart and let him give you identity and give you value. And when you do that, he can then use you to be a blessing to many and use you to advance his kingdom even in the job you do. You may struggle to see how your job intersects with God's kingdom, but here's the deal. He set it all in place 
as a common grace way of making this world function. He was the, the architect of, of the world's economy and the system that it is. Like he understands your job feeds into this job and allows these people to do this job and to, uh, go to the store and buy that food. You think about how, down, how much far down line you go when you think about the products you buy from a store. Right, and the way the society is set up and built. Like God has a plan for your work and part of that is that you would work faithfully, work hard and bring honor to him and serve those that are around you, whether you're an employee or a boss. So these are good principles to live by, even if, frankly, even if you're not a Christian, if your boss is not a Christian, things are gonna go better for you when you live this way. Does that mean you're gonna be you know, happy and prosperous and healthy and nothing's ever gonna go wrong? No. But when you invest your life as though you're working for the Lord, even when things go badly, and you get passed over, you get mistreated, you're not crushed. You're not devastated. Even when you lose your job for doing what you write, if you believe is right and following the Lord, right, you have a hope beyond that because the Lord's going to care for you. The Lord's going to provide for you. So some of you are dominated by your work. You need to be honest about that. You're dominated by it. It crushes you. It sucks the life out of you. Others of you, you're on the other end of that. It seems like it's the only thing that gives you life. You're so driven. It's all you think about. You can't even be present at your dinner table. You can't be present with your spouse or with your kids or your grandkids because all you're thinking about is work. Some of you are terrified about not making the income that you're used to. Some of you know that you should change jobs. Some of you know that you should take this stand, but you're terrified of what will happen if you don't have this income and you're paralyzed by fear, so you just move on and pretend as though it'll be okay. Some of you know you're participating in sin. Some of you know you're, you're perpetuating some kind of system that, that the Lord wouldn't have you in. It's not bringing honor to him, but you're, you're terrified of what will happen if you don't have that income. You need to repent, and you need to decide to trust the Lord most fully and that will include your work, that will include your provision, that will include who, how your bills get paid and what that looks like. And in short, you need to hear the gospel again. If you're dominated by your work, either in the negative or what we would say is the positive, you need to hear the gospel again. This whole passage of Colossians is rooted in the gospel truth. Let's read it again. Let's look back up at the beginning of chapter three, verses one through four. It says this, if then you have been raised with Christ... The things that are above, or seek the things that are above where Christ is. So if you've been saved and you have Jesus, stop seeking secondary things who cannot give you the satisfaction and the, and the glory that you're craving. You have Christ who can. He's the bread of life. He says, you partake of me, you, you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. So why would you have that and then step back down to these lesser things? Keep seeking him. Keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are earth or on earth. For if you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, then one day Christ, who is your life, will appear. And then you also will appear with him in glory. Here's what this is saying. This is all temporal. Is all temporary. If you try to gain value from it, it will bind you up, own you, suck the life out of you, and dominate you. 
But if you remember that Jesus disarmed all of those, those fears of provision and what you won't have and how you're going to feed, like that fear, that fear of what people will think, that fear of not being enough, that fear of not having enough, all of those fears, Jesus took those on the cross. And it says earlier in the chapter, verse 15, that, that he hung, like he says, verse or chapter two, verse 15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame and triumphing over them. So your life is no longer given value by anything here on earth. It's given value by being hidden with Christ on high. That's where your value is in Jesus. And your life is hidden there with him. So why be seeking these menial secondary things here on earth? The gospel sets us free to live the way that we were made. So we're not seeking them in a way that we're hoping that they'll bring us satisfaction. We're not seeking them in a way that if we don't have them, we will feel like life isn't worth living. We're seeking him, and whatever he gives us then will just be seen as a resource to bring honor and glory to him. So it's not wrong when he leads you to prosperity. It's not wrong when he gives you a business that thrives. It's not wrong when he gives you influence and opportunity over people. That's not wrong. You shouldn't feel guilt about that. But what are you doing with that? What are you doing with that? How are you honoring God and serving other people with those resources? The gospel transforms all of that and it frees us to work for God in a way that brings honor and glory to him. So don't let work dominate you. Don't let work own you. Come and bring that to the altar this morning. Surrender that to Jesus. Let him own you. Let him define you. And then he'll send you back to work with a different perspective, with a different hope, and with a different purpose. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us to rightly view the work in our life. Help us to rightly view what you've called us to do. But more than that, help us to rightly see you in all your glory this morning. That that will put things in perspective. That that will color things down line. That that will allow us to trust in you when we see you for all that you are and all the glory and all of the power that you behold. Help us to see that this morning. Send your spirit to, to do that, Lord. For those that don't know you, that don't know the hope that is within you, that have never trusted you as their savior, that have never seen the beauty that it means to be transformed and made new. Father, I pray you would speak directly to their hearts this morning through your spirit, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would overwhelm them with your glory and that they would know they have to have you, they have to come to you. And you would give them the faith to respond this morning. For the rest of us, Lord, help us to take a look at our life. To, uh, Examine honestly who we are, how we're living, and what you've called us to do. And may we get things in order. May we rightly order our lives, our priorities, our affections. Some of us need to do some work. We need to do some reordering. Give us the courage and the wisdom to do that today. We ask these things in your name, Lord. Amen.